Okay, can I just say this? This is baptism weekend. Woo! Let me just say this again. This is baptism weekend. Uh, Let me try it one more time. This this is the weekend when we we celebrate lives that have been been transformed by Jesus Christ. Can we hear it? So, pretty cool. I always love love this weekend. Um, So before I jump into the message, uh, I've got some things I want to share with you. Um, Been gone for the last couple of weeks and uh, have been able to do just some amazing, amazing things uh, where God is at work. One of them is I had an opportunity, my wife and I, and uh, two of the members of our congregation and friends, two and Lynette, uh, to go to Zambia and to um, visit Villages of Hope. Villages of Hope is a partner that we have been connected to for 13 years. We've had lots of people from our church who have gone to Villages of Hope. It came into existence 17 years ago, primarily in response to the HIV AIDS crisis in Zambia. And so they created a village, a community to bring in children who had lost their parents. And it's been an amazing response to that Need, But now, over the years, some of the needs in Zambia have changed, and the HIV-AIDS crisis is no longer uh, what it was, and the huge needs in Zambia have to do with, with food security and with education. And so this amazing village has kind of pivoted towards that, And uh, they have uh, several schools, elementary, middle school, high school, two colleges that have over 600 students that are in those schools. And uh, they started a uh, school of agriculture and uh, they started a a teaching school and they have also started uh, growing uh, their own grain. They have 250 acres and so they are, are growing their own grain. They are building their own thing. It's an amazing, amazing village that has become like vertically integrated. They, they've started all these businesses. They now employ, employment, as you can imagine, is a huge issue. They now employ 200 people in this little community in Zambia and are proclaiming the, the practical message of Christ in a place that so desperately longs for that. And uh, something about Zambia that I, I think are interesting, a couple of statistics. The average age in Zambia is 16. 16, think about that. One of the youngest nations on the planet in terms of population. And here's the one that kind of takes my breath away, is that for children under five, 50% of the children five or under are malnourished that's having a huge impact on their development, their growth, delays, all of that. And Villages of Hope is um, involved in, in uh, food security in ways not just on their campus, but 
with thousands of, loca- thousands of locations throughout Zambia. It's amazing, amazing work that they're doing. And uh, it was great to be there. And did we show a picture of Tu and Lynette? And yeah, they're, they're there with uh, and Donna on the right, uh, there with some of the kids. And uh, just an amazing place. And so much of this, we were able to uh, increase on one of their large fields uh, through some generous donations. We were able to increase their productivity threefold. So just some amazing things, and, and, and we're able to uh, provide some additional support for their solar panels and all of that so that now they'll be able to run everything on solar. It's just incredible, incredible stuff. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your involvement over the years and uh, for your support of this incredible ministry. That's the first thing. Second thing is as soon as I got back, uh, I turned around and I went with uh, two of our hangar students and Jess Eitvluck, who is our uh, pastor uh, with students and one of our teaching pastors here at the church, and Izzy, who is one of our interns, our trellis intern. We went to the first ever trellis conference in Kansas City, and it was just really cool. Trellis came into being through the vision of a young man that serves actually on our board, Jake Zasky, uh, responding to the crisis that we are in the midst of in the United States uh, for leadership within the, within the church. I'll just give you a couple of statistics. I won't bore you with a bunch, but a couple of statistics. is One is that 20%, only 20% of the pastors in the United States are under the age of 45. Think about that. So 80% of the pastors of the United States are over the age of 45. I'm not one of them, I, I'm 37, and so, um, so now let me just tell you, the trend is that 30 years ago, just 30 years ago, the number 45 and younger was almost 60%. It was almost triple what it is now. And we are not replacing new leadership in the church, and trellis, is an organization that came into being to respond to that and to raise up new leaders, new pastors, uh, to help with education, to provide free education for them as they go through an educational program and then are able to go into the life of the church. Just amazing, amazing stuff. And we went to the first ever conference, and and it was just neat because it was a small gathering, but there were students there, Trella students there, there were universities that were there that are helping to provide the educational programs. There were state and district coordinators that were there. There were pastors of large churches that were there. Just an amazing, amazing gathering. And uh, so we're just so thankful for what is happening there in the lives that are being impacted. Uh, Now, something to celebrate, uh, Izzy, who was a part of the, the beta test of this program just a few years ago, the first class of Trellis students is now graduating this next August with her degree, her bachelor's degree from an accredited institution and going into pastoral ministry in the church. Just amazing. And then we had two other uh, hangar students that, uh, that went as well. Amazing, amazing. Ellery and Brandon, they're seniors uh, and um, they are in the process of just trying to determine what God is calling them to in terms of educationally, vocationally, 
all of that. And uh, I've got a picture of the group. It was so much fun hanging out with them. Now, I just want to say a word. I realized this is on the plane when we landed in Dulles at the end of the trip. We got to that point, and I realized I had not taken a picture of the group. Zero. And so I said, come on, come on, hurry up. We got to take, we got to have a picture. And so I snapped this picture. The first thing Jess Eifluck says to me is, thanks for taking a picture of us when we are looking at our best. <laughs> Izzy came up to me today and said, I can't believe you are putting that picture in front of the congregation. But as I look at that, I think they look absolutely beautiful. And uh, I just have to tell you, what an encouragement for me to see Ellery and Brandon and Izzy and the depth of their faith and the openness to what it is that God has for them, whatever that will be, the openness to being in the yes position to God. And it was just for me an encouragement in my faith just to have the opportunity for three or four days just to hang out with them. I'm just so thankful what God is doing in the life of this church, particularly in our student ministry, next-gen stuff that we're doing. Can we just celebrate, just celebrate that? That's so awesome. And then the last thing, I promise I'd actually have a sermon, okay? The last thing is this, is that uh, on October 12th at 7 p.m., we're having what we're calling pitch night. Uh, you've heard me talk about this before, that we wanted to create some events and support for entrepreneurs who are looking to start businesses, profit, for-profit, and non-profit, uh, not necessarily all like ministry stuff, but businesses that are committed to doing good and carrying out the business that they're doing with a kingdom mindset. And so we did a Fairfax incubator for four weeks where a ton of folks went through the process and pitched their ideas and, and learned and grew and all of that. And now on pitch night on October 12th, six of those, we are kind of putting up for the whole congregation to come and to kind of hear these exciting pitches that they are making. And the reason I want to kind of talk to you about that just today is that our congregation is filled with um, folks that are so um, successful, so in touch with business. We have, we have so many entrepreneurs. We have uh, business owners, we have folks that are leaders in business, we have, we have teachers, we have folks that are in all kinds of profession, professions that they are excelling. And, and these new businesses uh, that are being pitched kind of cover all of that ground. And your presence there, just your encouragement, just your showing up to say, I'm excited about the fact that you're willing to take a risk and to start something that you think can have a difference in this world and make an impact. Like, I want to come alongside you with that. And so I think we've got a QR code that you can sign up. We'd like to know how many are coming so that we can uh, kind of get the room 
uh, situated the way that we want to do that. But I really encourage, there's so many of you that would be so helpful just to have you there and be an encouragement to this group. All right, so we're in the fifth week of this seven-week study in the Gospel of John that's called Restoring Broken Signposts. And we are focused on uh, what author and theologian N.T. Wright calls seven signposts, or what I would call seven longings, that point to what it means to be to be fully human. Uh, a longing for justice, a longing for love, a longing for power, a longing for beauty, a longing for freedom, a longing for truth, a longing for spirituality. We've looked at four of those. Uh, Kyle and Josh did over the last two weeks. Amazing, amazing job looking at two of these seven. And and what we kind of the reason we're doing this series is because even though we long as humanity for these things, it just seems like we never we never quite get it right when it comes to this stuff. Love turns selfish, justice is denied, beauty uh, gets defaced in some way, freedom gets ripped away, taken away, truth gets skewed in some way. We see it over and over again. Power gets abused. Uh, spirituality oftentimes becomes very self-absorbed. In other words, the signposts are broken. So what we're doing in this series is looking at these seven signposts through the lens of the Gospel of John because what John reminds us of is, is what God has done in the past, is doing in the present, and will do in the future to restore these signposts and what our role is in this restoration process. And the signpost that we're looking at today is the signpost of freedom. Now, all of us know that freedom is needed for human flourishing. (laughs) That we can't flourish as human beings without experiencing freedom. But the question is, like, what does it mean to be free? Because culturally, we've tended to define freedom as having the freedom to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. We've defined it as the ability to act or to not act with no constraints, like no constraints that, that put any limitations on our ability to act or to not act. But the freedom to actually do whatever we want whenever we want to do it actually uh, oftentimes leaves us into harmful practices or patterns of addiction. Whatever, like pick your poison. Addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, addiction to sex, addiction to work, addiction to being in a romantic relationship. We can't function unless we are in a romantic relationship. Addiction to being needed, like we, we become addicted to being needed, to having other people need us. Like the list just goes on and on and on. What we perceive as freedom often leads to becoming enslaved by the very thing that we were free to pursue. Becoming enslaved by the very thing that we were free to pursue. But when you look at freedom from a biblical point of view, you get a very different perspective of what it means to be free. Freedom is not doing what you want whenever you want to do it. Freedom is operating within certain restraints that allow you to flourish at the highest possible level. 
what looks joyous, joyously uninhibited on the surface is actually rooted underneath in very important principles. And you see this at work in all kinds of things, not just in like church stuff and spiritual stuff and all that. You just see this principle at work in all kinds of things. For instance, uh, a good example of this is music. When a musician improvises musically, like jazz uh, musicians, some of you love jazz music, like jazz musicians oftentimes do, it looks on the surface like they're, like they're not following any rules. That they're just kind of making things up. It looks like there's no restraints. It looks like they're doing whatever they want to do musically. But anyone, of course, who understands music knows that that is not true. Behind this incredibly beautiful, passionate, free-flowing music are all of these disciplines that you don't see. You don't see the years and years and years of practice and training, whether it's formal training or informal training, that, that it took to master the instrument, the particular instrument that they're playing. You don't see the music theory that is utilized to create a specific sound. My brother Larry uh, got his PhD in music theory, and uh, he taught music theory at the university level for a number of years. And Larry will tell you that whether you have ever taken a music theory class or not, and by the way, if you take it, it probably is the hardest class in music that you will ever take, but whether you have ever taken a music theory class or not, music theory is at work in the creation of beautiful music. Even music that is improvised. The way certain notes combine with other notes, the order, the rhythm, the timing, the way certain instruments play off of other instruments, like all of those, there are underlying principles that are at work in what you hear as this free-flowing expression of music. Musicians who improvise, uh, improvise aren't just hitting notes that they feel like hitting. There are rules. Even if it's not on a sheet of paper, there are rules that are, that are being followed. Um, let me give you an example. Here's, here's what it sounds like to improvise when you... Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's, you can take your pictures. That'd be great. Yeah, it's awesome. Post that. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to improvise for a little bit. Just, I'm just going to riff a little bit, okay? So just sit back. Um, just, just, just take it in, okay? Just take it in. It's pretty amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I admit, 
That didn't sound as awesome as I thought that it was going to sound. But maybe it's that um, I'm at the wrong instrument. I've been waiting 37 years <laughs> to do this in a service. I, I have always been envious of people that play the guitar. And I've been especially envious of pastors who play the guitar, who like do it all. Like they play the guitar, they lead in worship, and then they preach their sermon. It's just amazing. So, um, so first of all, I'm just going to kind of take this in for a moment because it just feels so good standing here. And again, feel free to take your pictures, like <laughs> post this, like that would be so awesome. That would be so cool if like you posted me like, you know, up here with a guitar strapped around my neck, like that's awesome. And uh, now, let me just kind of, let me improvise, let me improvise a little bit. Let me, uh, let me riff a little bit on the guitar. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good, he's so good to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will be back here next week. Now, I got to tell you, when the music team, when the worship team found out that I wanted to touch the guitar they they initially they went oh that's so awesome that's so cool but i know they were thinking oh my goodness he is going to break our guitars but i think we made we made it through now here's the point here's the point here's the reason the the way that culture often views freedom is just hitting any note that you want without any real underlying principle. Like, that's what it sounds like when you try to improvise, when you try to create something, when you try to do something with no underlying principle, it ends up sounding like that. It's ugly, it's chaotic, it's harsh, it's awful. And the Bible paints this very different picture of what true freedom looks like. And you see that picture in the story of Israel. Like the great overarching story of the Old Testament is, is the story of Israel's quest for freedom. We see Abraham's family like facing all kinds of problems in Genesis, the book of Genesis, 
the book of Exodus. There's all kinds of problems they're facing. But the overarching problem, like the problem that creates the narrative that really goes through all of Hebrew scripture is this problem of being enslaved in Egypt. And God's response to that enslavement is the exodus. It's the leading of the people of God out of Egyptian bondage, out of Egyptian slavery to freedom. That's why every year the Israelites would celebrate this act of deliverance that God had done with the Passover meal. And the liturgy of the Passover meal, like the reason they created the Passover, the reason God gave them the Passover meal is the liturgy of the Passover meal would rehearse all of the details of this great story of God's liberating work with the people of God. And it would etch into the minds of the Israelites the belief that they were meant to be free. They were created to be free. So even when they found themselves enslaved again, which happened a lot to the Israelites, the Passover reminded them that this was not the way it was meant to be. It reminded them that God had set them free in the past and he could set them free again. That's one of the reasons, and I had actually never really connected until I was preparing for this message, kind of connected these two things in quite this clear of a way. It's one of the reasons why during the feast of the Passover in Jesus' time, you know, the Roman governor, you know, Rome occupied uh, Palestine, and the Roman governor of the occupying force would release a prisoner at the request of the Jewish leaders. And, of course, we know the story because uh, when Jesus is arrested and they are going to release someone, uh, they bring out Barabbas and they, they put him beside Jesus and says, okay, we have to release someone. Who do you want us to release? Do you want us to release Barabbas or do you want us to release Jesus? And they cried out, Barabbas, like we want you to release Barabbas. The reason, the reason it was Rome's like small grudging acknowledgement of the meaning, the actual meaning of Passover. Like they were not naive. They knew what Passover represented for the Jews. They knew what it represented for the Israelites. And so they let the Jews have like a little bit of freedom by letting one person go who had been arrested, who was in prison, who was in jail, like setting one person free in an attempt to appease them and kind of basically keep them quiet. But over the time, the Israelites lost sight of two really important truths concerning the freedom that God wanted them to experience. First of all, they lost sight of the fact that God wasn't just concerned with setting them free politically and nationally. He was concerned with setting them free spiritually. It's no coincidence that Jesus chose the Passover as the time to go to Jerusalem and complete his mission. Because by aligning what he did on the cross, the paying for our sins, by aligning that with the Passover, Jesus was reminding everyone that not only is it God's desire to free people from oppressive rulers and oppressive systems and external freedom, it is also God's desire to set people free from the things that enslave their hearts and internal freedom. And Israel lost sight 
of that. The second thing they lost sight of, which leads um, to this, is they lost sight of the fact that freedom is not just doing your own thing. Just like with the musician, true freedom is operating within certain restraints. It's operating within certain principles. It's, it's, it's functioning within underlying principles, certain restraints that allow you to flourish at the highest possible level. True freedom is rooted in important principles that cannot, cannot be ignored. And Jesus talks about that in John 8. Look at what he says, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, well, we're Abraham's descendants. In other words, just like, we don't need to be set free. Like, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves to anyone. That's a ridiculous statement, by the way. We'll talk about that. How can you say that we shall be set free? Like, we've never been slaves to anybody. How can you say we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Can I get an amen for that? That's a great passage, yeah. Now, the whole second half of chapter 8, John chapter 8, is about this question of who are the true children of Abraham. That's kind of the question that is underneath all of this. And Jesus is dealing with people who have believed in him, Jews who have believed in him like up to a point, but now they're wondering if this really is the Messiah who's going to set them free from Roman oppression and Roman control like God had set them free from Egyptian bondage. And Jesus tells them that he's come to set them free, but that freedom is not going to look like the way that they think it's going to look like. Now, their initial response to all this, as I said, is very interesting. They say, we've never been slaves to anyone. And of course, that is an absolutely ridiculous statement. The central theme of Israel's narrative throughout the Hebrew scriptures is the theme that they were enslaved in Egypt and God set them free. But that wasn't the only time they were enslaved. After that, then they were exiled into Babylonian captivity and they were enslaved in Babylon. And then after that, the Persians came on the scene and they were enslaved by the Persian Empire. And it just kind of goes on and on. That enslavement continued in various forms until Jesus' time when, in essence, they are being enslaved by the Roman government. So their statement that they've never been enslaved by anyone makes no sense whatsoever. But here's the thing. Now, this isn't the but it's not a bad little lesson to learn as a leader. Is that, or maybe just as someone who gets in conversations with other people and you're trying to have a meaningful conversation and talk about things that matter 
and, and uh, all of a sudden things get said and rabbit trails get formed and all of a sudden you find yourself talking about things for hours that weren't even what you meant to talk about. Like this is our political discourse. Can I just say this? Just like you watch a debate, you watch any of that and you just go, how did it get there in the conversation? Does no one understand what active listening is all about? And the answer is, no, really, they don't. But Jesus does not take the bait. He does not go down the rabbit trail. Instead, he stays focused on the slavery that they're experiencing on the inside. And when Jesus says everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, he's redirecting their focus from the external to the internal. He's not saying that outward slavery doesn't matter. He's saying that there is a kind of slavery deep within the heart of every human being that is even more insidious than outward slavery. Jesus says that this is the kind of slavery that actually disqualifies a person for being a part of Abraham's true family, of being a part of the family of God. That's what he means by the phrase, a slave has no permanent place in the family. In other words, Jesus is saying freedom is not the product, what you have thought for all these years, is not the product of your family lineage. Freedom is not the product of the family that you're a part of or the church that you're a part of or whatever it is. Like Freedom is not the product of that. Freedom is the product of the truth. It's the truth, Jesus says, that will set you free. Now, what truth is Jesus talking about? Well, he tells us again in the text. Everything is there in the text. Look at it again. Verse 31, 32, and then verse 36. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth. Then you will know the truth. If you hold to my teachings, then you will, hold, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, here's the thing about those two things. Like, which is it? Like, he says, the truth will set you free. And then he says, the Son, Jesus, will set you free. So, like, which is it? Is, is it the truth that sets us free, or is it the Son Who sets us free? And the answer is yes, because the truth is Jesus. When Jesus says the truth will set you free, and then he says the Son will set you free, he's equating himself with the truth. He is saying, I am the truth that sets you free. I'm the truth. Jesus is the truth that sets you free. But he says more than that. He says, if you want to know the truth, in other words, if you want to know me, the truth who sets you free, if you want to know the truth, if you want to know me, you will what? You will hold to my teachings. If you want to know the truth that will set you free, you will hold to my teachings. In other words, you can't know the truth. You can't really be free unless you hold 
to my teaching. It's Jesus' teaching that is the principle that underlies everything. It is Jesus' teaching that is the principle that keeps the music from being chaotic and awful and ugly and makes the music beautiful that we are able to make with our lives. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, and it's a radical thing that he's saying. He's saying that, one, you can't know the truth. You can't really be free unless you hold to my teaching. And then he's saying you can't separate me from my teaching. That's a huge, that's such an important concept. And it's not just something 2,000 years old that we need to hear. Like, it is true today. People are constantly trying to separate Jesus from his teaching in pursuit of freedom. And he's saying, you can't do that. You can't separate me from my teaching. If you try to follow me without following my teaching, you won't experience the freedom that you've been created to experience. You'll just be hitting random notes that are chaotic and harsh and awful. And Jesus is saying, if you really want to be free, if you really want to flourish, if you really want to make music that is beautiful and inspiring and impacts everyone who hears it, you will hold to my teaching. My teaching will become the principles that guide the music that you are producing with your life. Sometimes people try to follow Jesus without following his teaching. Maybe you know someone who's tried to do that. Maybe you at times have tried to do that. Or we try to follow Jesus without following his teaching. Sometimes we try to follow Jesus without following his teaching. It doesn't work. They still find themselves, we still find ourselves enslaved. The notes we keep hitting are still chaotic and harsh. Other times, people try to follow Jesus' teaching without really following Jesus. Embrace Jesus' teaching without really embracing Jesus, without really trusting their life to Jesus and what he did for them on the cross. And that doesn't work either because it's Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that is the ultimate victory over things that enslave us. It is Jesus' death on the cross that is the ultimate victory over things that enslave us. Can I get an amen for that? Like, that's what sets us free. It's only when we embrace the work of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. I want to wrap this up. I, I, I've been praying. I've been praying a lot leading into this weekend. They just felt like there was just so many things that God is wanting to do in, in, in my life, in, in the life of our congregation, in, in many lives, uh, just so many things that he's wanting to do. And I've been, I've been praying, first of all, that this weekend that God will, will set some people free. That God will just set some people free. Um, free from your sin. Maybe, um, maybe you've never experienced the, the forgiveness of God for 
your sin and the freedom that comes with that forgiveness. And, and you are still enslaved to your sin. And I've been praying that whoever is, is, is enslaved to this sin, that God will set you free from your sin or, or set you free from your past. Some of you have some stuff in your past that is still getting dragged into the present and impacting the way you live your life. The way you relate to others, the way that you function, the decisions you made, and it all has to do with the past. That you've not really been set free from the past. And so I've been praying that people that perhaps are enslaved by the past would be set free. I've been praying that people who are paralyzed by fear. Like, it's okay to be afraid. In fact, one of the things that was said at the conference we were at this week is that, is that part of what it means to lead as followers of Jesus is leading, um, leading afraid. <laughs> like, leading even when we are afraid. <laughs> leading even when we are nervous. And that's okay. It's when the fear becomes paralyzing. It's when the fear keeps you from doing the things and saying the things and having the conversations and taking care of the things that need to be taken care of in your life that paralyze you. That, and that's what I've been praying for. I've been praying that people who are paralyzed by fear would be set free from that paralysis you would be set free from any addictions maybe that are controlling your life that have consumed your life or impacting your relationship with God impacting your relationship with your spouse impacting your relationship with others like you would be set free from that you would be set free from self-centeredness and self-absorption and, and, and you would be free to, to live sacrificial lives, truly sacrificial lives, that you'd be set free to truly love others unconditionally, to truly love others the way that God has loved you. And I just want to pause before we wrap this up, just to kind of pray specifically for that. God, you know the things that we struggle with that can so easily enslave us. And sometimes uh, we get victory over them and then, and then they come back. And maybe for some of us, there, there are different things and even that I mentioned today that, that there is a need to experience freedom and to be set free from. But whatever it is and whatever it takes, and if, and if it takes talking to a friend, if it takes... Uh, sharing something with your small group, if it takes going to a counselor, if it takes getting involved in a 12-step program, if it takes uh, being uh, a part of a support group and a system, uh, whatever, whatever it takes, Lord, we would just rebuke the things that enslave us and keep us from living the life you created us to live and pray that you would set us pray that in the name of the one 
who is the truth, who sets us free. In the name of Jesus. And here's the other thing I've also been praying about. I've been praying that people would seize their divine moment this weekend and boldly declare their faith through baptism. Uh, we've got a number of folks who are getting baptized this weekend, and it's just absolutely awesome who are declaring their faith, boldly declaring their faith in Jesus. And here, but here's what I've been praying for. I've been praying... For anyone who knows Jesus, who's given their life to Jesus, and, and there are really kind of silly, inconsequential things when we look at it through the lens of like what's really important in life that, that keep us from taking that bold step of declaration. You know, it's interesting, over, over the history of the life of the church, 2,000 years, the one thing in every political environment, in every national environment, in every era of facing persecution, not facing persecution, all of that, the thing that has connected the saints, the thing that has connected the people of God has been this simple yet profound, bold declaration that I have decided to follow Jesus. This bold declaration of following the, the Lord in water baptism. The Lord who himself, who knew no sin, but set the example for us of following the Lord in water baptism. This last week, uh, while I was at the conference, I got a chance to be on a Zoom call with uh, Bilga. Bilga, some of you know, Bilga is our church planter in Istanbul. An amazing, amazing young man. And we were just talking about some exciting things that are happening in the Istanbul church. And um, he talked about their most recent baptism service. And I was just like really intrigued. And because of the environment that they're in, where, where um, folks making decisions to follow Jesus and, and going public with their faith can, can, be, can be dangerous at some level, uh, out of wisdom, uh, when they do their baptism service, they do it... Um, away from the city. They do it on an island. Uh, they do it uh, at a retreat. And they have a pool there and uh, they baptize people who have come to know Jesus. And most of the people being baptized are people that come from different religious backgrounds and, and they've, they've, they've come to know Jesus as their Savior and they've said yes to what he's done for them on the cross. It's just an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And the first uh, person who was ever baptized in the church is a young lady uh, who I'll just call Anna. Not a real name, but Anna. And uh, she came from a home where um, there was lots of repercussions in the fact that she had become a follower of Jesus and, and um, that she was getting baptized. And there were threats against her life and there was precautions that had to be taken. And some of you actually have stories, I know, because I've heard your stories that you can identify with all of this. Amazing, amazing stuff. And she boldly declared her faith in Jesus. And now it's a number of years later, and she has, uh, there's five kids in the family, and uh, God has used her to have an impact on all, uh, all five. And, and it's really cool. And so they were at this retreat, and not only was Anna there, but her youngest uh, brother, we'll call him Michael, uh, her youngest brother, Michael, was there. 
And he had made a decision to follow Jesus. And now he was getting baptized to declare his faith, boldly declare his faith in Jesus. And uh, (laughs) I still can't kind of believe this, that while they're there, right before the baptism service, Anna's mom calls her and says, where are you? And, um, and so she tells her, she doesn't tell her the location, but she tells her that they're at a retreat and, um, and there's baptisms going on and that her youngest son, uh, Anna's youngest brother, is following the Lord in water baptism. And her mom said, um, her mom didn't actually make a threat herself. Her mom said, if, if, if Michael goes through with this, I can't control the response of your father. But he, I believe, is going to go on um, a binge. And, And not only perhaps kill Michael, but kill you. And I can't stop that. And I just want to warn you. And so they talked about it. Think about that. Right before you're getting ready to be baptized, that's the news you get. That's the news you get. And it's like, you know, Bill is going, listen, you know, I don't, I don't want to put any external pressure on you like this. This, is, this has to be your decision. I understand the risk. I get it. All of that. I want to be sensitive to it. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody, nobody, nobody's going to judge you. Michael said, no. I've decided to follow Jesus. And I want to publicly declare. I want to join with all of those throughout the 2,000 year history of the church. I want to publicly declare what Jesus has done in my life. And Michael was baptized. (laughs) Just awesome. We should probably celebrate that, that Michael was baptized. And it's just interesting that I have that conversation on the week that I'm preparing for this weekend and our baptism. And my prayer, just my prayer, without any kind of pressure, my prayer was just this. God, don't let any silly, inconsequential thing keep people from boldly declaring their faith in Jesus Christ through water baptism. Like whatever God is doing in your heart, don't let any inconsequential thing keep you from saying yes to that. I think you heard at the beginning of the service, like if you came and weren't thinking about being baptized and didn't bring your stuff and all that, we, we got you covered. We've got you. We've got all the things that you need. You would have, had to, you would have taken 30 minutes to try to figure out what you were going to wear anyway. And now, like, that's all taken care of it for you, you know, and it's going to be awesome, and it looks great. And uh, so there's no logistics you have to worry about, none of that. We've got all of that for you. If God is tapping on the shoulder and saying, today's the day, like, don't put it off anymore. Today's the day. Just respond to what God is saying. God, we're just so thankful for this moment. For those who have said yes to you, for those who are declaring their faith, um, and we just want to celebrate like heaven is celebrating 
as, as we, um, yeah, just acknowledge the transforming power of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. All of God's people said, amen. All right, would you stand together? And I want to send out all those that are being baptized and those that maybe are connected to them that want to be out by the pool. There's folks out there. Uh, if you need to get some clothes, need to kind of get all that, there's folks out there. They can help you, tell you where to go and tell you where to stand and all that kind of stuff. So going out. And as they're going out, as I said in the prayer, heaven is celebrating. There's a party going on in heaven. There needs to be a party going on here. So would you celebrate what God is doing in the life of this congregation?